trust that God will uh, bless these words that may come from him, that we would be encouraged. I want you to turn with me to a few verses, sort of set the table here. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. I'm just going to look at a few select passages of the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I know many of you know these verses anyway. This is what every child of God should be in some way or another. Paul, I think, may have been using this exclusively for himself, but nevertheless, I believe that we can claim it as well. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by or through us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Notice that Paul saying, we are speaking in God's stead. That's an amazing, noble position to be in, is to be speaking on God's behalf. Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it according to the ability that God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and power and dominion forever. Amen. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 1 in verse 5. Colossians 1, 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven... Whereof you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. I want to zoom in on the words, and bringeth forth fruit. That is, the gospel is said to bring forth fruit. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. There's about 59 verses I could have turned to here that uh, are basically saying the same type of thing, but I'm trying to select a few that I think will uh, hopefully get us in the right frame of mind to, to prepare for what we need to hear. Verse 5, for we, for, excuse me, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. It's much like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5, when he says, Our speech and our preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, all of us aspire to be biblical preachers. But let's stop a moment and ask the question, how do we differ from those who preached in the first century? I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but often we hear ourselves bragging about how we're, we're biblical preachers, we're preaching the word of God, we're preaching as they did in the apostolic period, but are we really? <laughs> Obviously, there's some reasons why we are not. For instance... They, when they preached, didn't have a Bible in their hand. Does that surprise you? I mean, if you tried to preach without a Bible in your hand, something would be wrong. You probably wouldn't have much of a flock that would come out to hear you. But the reasons are very practical why they didn't. 
First of all, there weren't any what we call now codexes, where pages were actually stapled together neatly into a bind, binding like this, and, and, and pages could be opened and turned to and so on, like I just asked you to turn to such and such a book and such and such a chapter and such and such a verse. Well, it may even surprise you more to know that no one was able to even say chapter and verse until late in the 1500s when it became, an, there was an idea to try to make it convenient so that people could follow along where the reader was reading. But no additions prior to that, any Bibles that were produced actually had chap, chapter divisions or, uh, and, uh, and uh, ver verse uh, divisions. So that's one thing. They didn't have a Bible in their hand. When Jesus went into the synagogue, it says he was given the scroll. The book, it really is scroll of Isaiah. And it says he found the place, which likely means he had to unroll the scroll and he ha had to find the place. And of course, he didn't need to locate it because he's the Logos, he's the word of God. But he turns to what we know to be now, Isaiah 61 and 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. And it says, and all eyes were upon him because he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now that sent a shockwave through the synagogue. The one that was reading the word is claiming to be the author, the Messiah, the anointed one that Israel had long been waiting for, and there he is on the scene. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, and yet at the same time, they want to push him over the brow of the hill. So first century persons did not have the scriptures, like we do in our hand, it's so handy for us to be able to have the word. They didn't also have what we would have notes. We prepare. Who, how many of us would get in the pulpit without our notes? I was telling some of the brothers I came down with that uh, there's been about a half a dozen times that I've actually gone to church without my notes. I forgot them. I went to a conference that I had prepared for 11 days to speak on a certain subject, and I got there, and I... I was in another state. I didn't have my notes with me. Oh, you know, that's shocking. It's terrible. It's horrible. But if you were in the first century, that wouldn't be the problem. Why? They didn't prepare likely like the way we do. Because they gave, message spont they gave messages spontaneously. They were what we would call extemporaneous. They could just off the cuff give out the word of God. Take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 14. If it, 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 it reads there that, uh, and of course I realize we're talking about first century, and there may be an extra portion of the Spirit in some ways ministering to uh, the people of God and the men of God and the preachers of God in a time when there wasn't the completed canon, there wasn't the written word. I make room for that. But nevertheless, I assume that it was a different type of a day than our day, and I think we're to be blamed for a lot of the reasons why we're not able to speak the word unless we study and prepare and so on. I think one of the reasons is we're not walking in the spirit.
And I think if we were walking in the Spirit, we would be like Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready all the time. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The Apostle Paul, um, along with, uh, I believe it was Barnabas at that time in Acts chapter 13, goes into the synagogue, which was often the outpost for evangelism. He sits in a synagogue service where the scriptures were read, the Old Testament scriptures were read. And somehow, some must have felt, because they were strangers, maybe even the way they dressed possibly, I'm not sure, but they had a hunch that maybe these men could contribute to interpreting the word. And they'd look at Paul and Barnabas and say, do you have any word of exhortation? Say on. And Paul stood up. How many of us could do that? Do you have a word of exhortation? Could you get up and speak the word extemporaneously like, like we heard like George Whitfield, I think, could? They didn't preach in church settings like we do. The, 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 the preachers didn't have the, the, the clerical outfits. They didn't have uh, all the paraphernalia and all the things that go along with, with what might be a, what we would call a church building. They preached in the Agora. They preached in schools, in the synagogues. They preached in, on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, which I have been to, by the way, which has anyone ever been there? That was a very moving time to be on that place, and I... I said, i got to preach the gospel on Mars Hill. I didn't come all the way to Athens to just observe the place, but unfortunately, as I kind of mulled around and I was listening to conversations, everybody was from all different countries of the world, all speaking their own languages, and I thought, unfortunately, I only speak English. I have no miracle to tell you about, brothers and sisters, so sit back in your seats. I know I got you on the edge, but nothing happened there. I couldn't even read Acts 17. It was all in Greek anyway. They had a plaque there with, uh, with Paul's sermon, but that was amazing. They didn't have PA systems. They weren't able to, uh, to uh, you know, get their voices through electronically in any way, uh, broadcasting it like that. They didn't have any music in the background. There was no fancy clothing. And another thing that they didn't do is they didn't have an invitation system. They didn't have the invitation system. You know, Arthur Pink says it this way, the gospel is not merely an invitation, but a declaration. And I think we miss that in our gospel presentations, that we think the only purpose of preaching the gospel is for the salvation of souls. Wrong. Paul says, we are, we are, uh, we are a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are a savor of life unto life. And to the other we are a savor of death unto death. But what? But God in all things is being glorified. Amen. You know, we sometimes think that gospel preaching is to be measured by the amount of people that get saved. If that was the case, Christ was a failure. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 7, 32. He says, we have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not wept. Was he a failure? 
No, but God was being glorified in the word. We preach Christ and him crucified. And you know whose ears tune in the, the best of all? It's God Almighty himself. God is being worshipped, you could say, highly in the praises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether anybody believes it or not, God is being glorified. And there's a declaration to mankind that the Jesus who you may reject is Lord in Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended up into heaven. And he's sitting right now on the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And he's reigning over his enemies right now from Zion because he holds the staff of kingship in his hand. He's regal. He's Lord. So we preach that Jesus is Lord. Whether people bow the knee or not, the truth is that they... If they don't bow now, they're going to bow then. And Christ is going to be glorified whether in this lifetime, in the lives of sinners that get saved, or in the future. The Bible says, surely the wrath of man shall praise him, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. We have a replacement vocabulary that has come in church history in the last 200 years or so. And I know I don't need to go with you historians through it all and how Charles Finney had initiated the, the anxious seat and how that was developed even further and Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and all those that are in between have followed along that same train. In words like, give your life to Christ. Open your heart to Jesus. Do it now. Surrender completely. Decide for Jesus. Someone says the gospel preacher is not a spiritual obstetrician appointed to supervise the new birth of sinners. Still less is he called to propose ways which, if complied, will accomplish the rebirth. A preacher in Scotland in the late 1800s, John Kennedy, put it this way. The great aim of gospel preaching is to set forth the object, not to explain the act of faith. If I had to give a title to one I want to speak on tonight, it would be this Calvinistic methodology in evangelism. Is the gospel enough? Is the gospel enough? About 20 years ago or so, I, was, I had been doing prison ministry, and I went to this new prison, and uh, they gave me an opportunity to speak to uh, the inmates. This was the eve of Thanksgiving, somewhere around 1988. The chapel was packed with, with, with men. I brought my, actually had my wife and my children, my daughters sang, and it, it was, it was a, a great evening, and I preached the gospel. And then a few days I went back and I visited, uh, particularly with one of the brothers who was an assistant to the chaplain. His name was Felix Rodriguez. And Felix says, oh, brother, what a message you brought the other night. What power was felt in the audience. The only thing is, brother, what happened? You didn't in give an invitation. Do you know how many people would have been saved if they came, if they came forward Oh, brother, and he was trying to be as polite as he could. And I then tried to be as polite as I could. 
And I says, Brother Felix, but I did give an invitation. I told them that Christ died on Calvary's cross, that he shed his blood for sinners, and that whosoever will can believe the gospel and trust him, and they can be saved. I was holding out hope. I told them how to, how to trust Christ, how to believe on the gospel, how to look to Calvary, and that only for the salvation of their souls. Well, he didn't know what to say to that. I says, isn't that good enough? Just a couple of weeks ago at our own church, again at the end of one of the messages, one brother had brought a young lady up. She was about 21 years old, and he says, he says Brother Gary, this, this young woman wants to be saved. She wants to be saved. Now, I, I'm sure many of you had, have had situations like that. And as I do open-air preaching, I always often have people coming up asking the same question. You know, and the, this, is where, this is where kind of the rubber's meeting the road. This is why I want to get to. What is our methodology at that point? Now, I may be challenging you, but I, I don't want to say that I necessarily have the answers. But I do want to say that where the power lies in the salvation of souls is simply in the gospel. What more can I say than what I have said? And when people like this young lady that came up, I says, I said to her, her name was Joanne. I says, Joanne, did you hear what was said? Do you understand what Christ did on the cross for sinners? I said, I cannot believe for you. I can't install anything into you to make you accept, obey, trust this gospel. My job is simply to present Christ and him crucified. And if it pleases God to move in your heart and in your spirit to come to faith in Christ, it will be accomplished. And I pray that God will bring it to pass. Uh, last Friday, and I've been doing this uh, fairly, well, once a month now, I've been going into, in with a police, with the police cruisers. I actually have a privilege that they've made a, a, they call it a police clergy coalition. It started in Dallas, Texas, I was told, in the city of Worcester in Massachusetts, where I'm from. Uh, liked the idea, and they invited the Dallas Police Department up, and they presented this program where police officers actually have clergy ride-alongs to go with them. Well, in our local church, we have a a Worcester a City police officer. And he says, brother, because I've said to him in the past, I'd love to go with you someday. And I knew it would, would never happen because they just don't allow that. But he says, guess what? They get a program now where the clergy can come along and I want you to come with me so you can witness to the prostitutes on Main Street. I goes, hallelujah, let's go. So last Friday, besides other calls of shoplifters and you know, gang fights and whatnot, we had a little time, we're driving down Main Street, and sure enough, he pulls over, and he waves this prostitute over, you know. Here I am in plain clothes, here's the police officer next to me, I got the window rolled down, and he's calling her over to the car, and she's looking at me like, what is the police officer setting something up for me? <laughs> and I, and I, I, I wanted to act quickly on what the point of our getting together with her was all about. <laughs> but thankfully, he said to her right off the bat, he says, uh, I want you to meet, this is Pastor Gary here. He's a ride-along, and he wants to tell you something. So I said, what's your name? And she said, Kelly. I said, Kelly, what's your last name? LaBelle, pray for Kelly LaBelle. I said, Kelly, if you were to die, where do you think you'd go? Are you going to be surprised at what I'm going to tell you? 
She said, I'm going to go to heaven. I said, you're going to go to heaven? I said, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? She says, I'm going to go to heaven because God loves us and because he'll forgive us. I says, you know, but the Bible teaches that you've got to be forgiven in this lifetime. Because if you're not forgiven here, you're not going to be forgiven there. And I says, and let me tell you, God has given us his authority, the word of God, that we can trust him about. And I quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 9 about not being deceived that neither adulterers nor idolaters nor fornicators. And I says, you're a prostitute. You are a whore. You are not going to go to heaven because the verse goes on to say, and such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. My, my br brother police officer there was kind of swallowing his Adam's apple at that point. But she said, I just, I just felt the spirit leading me in that direction. And, and she said, oh, oh, really? It's like she understood it. I said, you know why you can't go to heaven? Because you've got to be made holy in this lifetime. You've got to get right with God before you can go to glory. In the way you are now, Jesus says, if you die in your sins, where I am, you cannot go. And then we asked her questions about her lifestyle and how, what, what's going on in her life. I couldn't describe it to you, but it was awful wickedness. I says, how long have you been prostituting? She was 28. She says, since I was 13 years old. She says she goes days sometimes without eating any food because all of the money that she collects goes to, to buying crack so she can smoke it. And that's what she lives for. I says, don't you see, don't you have any hope beyond this? She goes, I don't know, but that's just what I live for. I says, Kelly, can I pray for you right now? And she stopped a second and she said, no, I don't think that would be right. She says, because you're going to pray for me and I'm going to go out and do the same thing anyway. I says, I appreciate your honesty, but let me tell you, there was a man that brought his son that came to Jesus and said this to him. To Jesus, this is what was said. If you can, take pity on us and help us. Remember how Jesus responded? It would be something like this if we could get the actual nuance. If you can, if you can, Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. I says, Kelly, everything is possible for him who believes. Do you want help? Do you want to have to God to have pity upon you? You need to cry out to God for mercy. How are we presenting the gospel to souls? What is our methodology? What are we doing? You know, there are three, I, I, this is my, my thoughts, there are three types of, quote, Christians. There's a Christian by reasoning, there's a Christian by ritual, and then there's a Christian by revelation. Guess which one is the true Christian? It's not reasoning, it's not ritual, but it's revelation. Didn't Nicodemus say, I mean, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says, are you a master in Israel and don't you know these things? And you might have been puzzled and, and wondered, what does Jesus mean when he says to, to Nicodemus, who's a, who's a knowledgeable 
man, obviously about the Old Testament scriptures, and Jesus is saying, don't you know that your own Bible, the scriptures, teaches that you must be born again? But where does it say that? Well, I could give you what I think are some examples of that, but I'll give you one at least. And I think an excellent example of one is in 1 Samuel 3. The one that was, remember, Hannah brought it to the, uh, to the tabernacle and uh, brought him to the tabernacle, Samuel. He was like an apprentice to the high priest. And, and of course, it says this specific, specifically. And Samuel wasn't a baby. He was uh, a young man. And it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He did not yet know the Lord, which implies that Israelites... Certain stages of their life, many of them, of course, did not know the Lord. Remember, they're in the covenant, but they're not in the family of God. They're, they're a part of the nation, but they're not part of the remnant. They're Israel, but they're not the Israel of God, because not all Israel is of Israel. Samuel did not know, did not yet know the Lord. And then verse 21 says, And the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. It reminds you of when the apostles were asked by Jesus, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, you're this and that and so on. And then Peter says, when, when, he, when Jesus says to the, to the apostles now, but who do you say that I am? Jesus, I mean, Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ of the Son of the living God. And Jesus says what? Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. A Christian is a Christian by revelation. Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. And Whitfield would often ask his his fellow Christian brothers and sisters, to pray for him. And he said, pray for me this way. Like Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray for us, and I'm going to use a modern translation, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and that it may be honored even as it was among you. Even as it was among you. How was it? Honored among them. We just read 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. For our gospel did not come, to come unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance so that your faith is spread abroad and we don't have to say anything about it. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, When you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. They received the word of men as if it was the word of God because it was the words of God in the words of men. That's how they received it. There was four men back in Whitfield's day, and they made a custom of this. And on one occasion, they went to the alehouse, and they decided that they were going to make a mockery because Whitfield was in the area preaching. So they were going to try to mimic him. And one did this and one did that. Finally, one of them went, 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 went into the uh, innkeeper's cabinet and he took a Bible out. He took the Bible and he just randomly opened the Bible. And his eyes fell on Luke 13, 3. Except ye repent. And there he is with the word, pretending that he's Whitfield. And he's shouting out, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He was stopped. 
right there. He started to shake. He started to worry. He started to get anxious. God's spirit worked through that verse in that man's life. He could not go one word beyond. He stopped himself, turned around, made a beeline out the door, fell on his knees and cried out to God for mercy, and God saved him. That's the power of the word of God. What is our methodology? <clears throat> in some of Whitfield's sermons, I'm going to just give you a couple of gleanings from them. This is in a sermon about Zacchaeus. He said, Jesus called him by his free grace and sweetly but irresistibly inclined him to obey his call. As I pray, God, he may influence all you to come to see who the preacher is. Didn't Peter say in Acts 3.23? He says, see that you don't. Every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Now here Peter is preaching and he's saying, you need to hear the preacher. And if you don't hear that prophet preaching, you are in danger of everlasting destruction. In Hebrews 12, 25, it says, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we refuse him that speaketh from heaven. It is amazing how God can use us as vessels, as tools in his hands to accomplish his purposes. What did Jesus mean in John 10 when he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How are they hearing his voice? If any man speak, let him speak as an oracle of God. And Peter said in 1 Peter 1.12 about the gospel was preached unto them with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. That's how people hear. So that they're not hearing the preacher with a small p, they're hearing the preacher with the big p. The capital letter P, the preacher. Whitfield says, beg God to make you willing to be saved in the day of his power. For it is not flesh and blood, but the spirit of Jesus Christ that alone can reveal these things unto you. And he says, for either God must change or you must change. And certainly, he is not going to change. Do not turn your backs. Do not let the devil hurry you away. Be not afraid of convictions. Do not think worse of the doctrine because preached without the walls. Because people might think, well, it's less holy. It's less important. It's not, it's not as sanctified because it's not within sacred precincts, precincts as it were, not at all. The word is preached everywhere, and whatever is sounded forth, it's expected to be bowed to anywhere. If you, can't, if you say you cannot believe, you say right. For faith, as well as every other blessing, is the gift of God. But then wait upon God, and who knows, but he may have mercy upon you. The only guarantee that we can hold out to sinners is basically this. In Acts 16.30, 
The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? You know, Paul could have, if we used modern day methodologies, well, just say this prayer after me or just do this or do that or come forward, et cetera, et cetera. No, it was this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He just said it. Paul says, we preached and you believed. Acts 18.8 says, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Paul says in, about himself and Apollos, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. When God attends his word, that is the day of power. When people come under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, when it's preached with accuracy, with power, and when it's in his day. And some days may not be the day that we think they are. Our responsibility is to sow the seed. Many people take that verse wrongly from Isaiah where it says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. And they put a period there. But it goes on, But it shall accomplish that for with I have sent it. And it will prosper in the thing for which I have sent it. If God has an intention for his word, it is going to be irresistibly received. And that's the confidence that we have as people that believe in the doctrines of grace. When I try to explain sometimes the difference between Arminianism, Arminian evangelism and Calvinistic evangelism, I says, from a Calvinistic perspective, we go to a pond that we know that there are fish to be fished out of because God has an elect people who will be saved. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring there are people to be saved. We can sow the seed optimistically knowing that it is going to be directed to the sheep who God designs it to be for. And if there are none out there that, there, that it is designed for, God in all things is glorified through Jesus Christ preached. And we need to rejoice in that and not be discouraged. What is the actual... What is the... What is the core of the gospel? Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth as crucified among you. That word could be translated that Christ was graphically described as crucified among you. Does that not harmonize what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2? We determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Why do I have to try to dress it up? Why do I have to make it any different? Don't I believe that the gospel contains the power for the conversion of mankind? Why then do I need to add to it? It's like the children of Israel when they weren't satisfied with the manna and they claimed that it wasn't tasteful and that it was a soul loafeth this light bread. And they decided to what? To put a little oil on it and honey and to kind of make it a little more flavorful and change it. That's what I think we're trying to do with the gospel to make it appealing to people. And I could say 
really without, without hesitation that the emerging church has twisted the word of God and tried to make it more 21st century palatable to the carnal mind of man. What is that going to do? A gospel without the cross can be crossed out as not a gospel at all. If we're not preaching the blood, then what are we preaching? Even Wesley, known as an Arminian, I wonder if his Arminianism of that day might be more like our Calvinism of today. You read some of Wesley's sermons, and man, I think we can fit right in, or he can fit in with us in a lot of ways. And I'm, not, and I'm saying that positively, not negatively, but uh, let, me, let me quote something that he said. He said, set Christ high. And man as low as possible in the business of salvation. All merit is in the blood of Christ and all power is from the spirit of Christ. One time I was preaching in the open air and uh, there were about five young men that started to head in my direction. And for some reason I was detecting problems are coming my way. They just looked like a rowdy bunch that were up to no good. They were somewhere between the 19 and 22-year-old range. And uh, I just kept preaching the word. And uh, they started coming closer, and they sat. There's a statue that was about maybe 40, 50 feet in front of me that had some steps, and they were sitting on them. And then they... They started jeering me and mocking, and every time I quoted a verse, they'd come up with some vulgarity. It was, it was profane. It was, it was getting worse and worse by the minute. And crowds, praise God that this is how God can use something like this, crowds started getting involved and interested because these guys were really carrying on. It was almost like a, a, a demon infestion in these people that were carrying out like, like fools and, and, and barbaric and nasty and crude. And my face, to try to avoid the contention, I tried to look a little off to the side rather than looking them right in the face, hoping that I could sort of uh, simmer them down and that they would not think that they're getting to me. But it was getting to me because it was getting to the crowd and they were getting so vulgar. Well, I finally felt I'm thinking, I can't cast my pearls before swine. Is it time for me to stop? And I just turned to them, and I looked right at their faces, and I says, men, guys, I want you to know, listen up. I says, God is able at this moment, and I snapped my fingers. I says, God is able at this moment, because he is not mocked, that he is able to stop your mouths. And God is my witness. Now you can get on the edge of your seat. To God be the glory. Within a minute or less, some big muscle head guy came out of nowhere. It was in late June. He had his shirt off. He was cut like you read about Mr. America or whatever. He comes right in front of these five characters. He's sticking his finger in his, their faces, and he's shouting the same vulgarities at them that they were shouting at me, and basically was saying, shut up and listen to that man preach. So what he did is he says, I want you all to sit down, and we're going to listen to him. So he sat with the other five. They sat down for 20 minutes uninterrupted. And I, I'll tell you, it touched my heart. 
I mean, it made me realize that God is truly alive. That he's here today like he was yesterday and the day before. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he tells us, and this has been an encouraging verse to me. Because sometimes when, when, I, when I pulled up downtown, and it's the second largest city in New England, uh, and I have equipment. I have a sandwich board that says Christ died for the ungodly or the blood of Jesus, something like that. have several verses. And I start unloading my equipment. And on one occasion, I remember, they saw me loading it, a bunch of people, and they all started booing me. Go back home, preacher. We don't want to hear you. My knees literally were knocking. They were knocking. I just felt like... I'm not wanted here, no one cares, and I was, I was deeply saddened, you know, internally. But I thought of the scripture where Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That gave me a consolation that I wasn't alone. Like Paul said, like the Lord said to Paul when he was in Corinth, and he was very, uh, he too was discouraged, and he wanted to cut out, and he felt like his, like his time there had come to a close. And the Lord says to him, to him, Paul, be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. I have much people in this city. That harmonizes what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10. I therefore endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure all things for the elect's sake. There are fish in the pond. Jesus said to Peter and others, I will make you fishers of men. And that's what we do, we fish for men. But what is the bait that we have on our hook? It's got to be only and simply, but so powerfully, so true, in so much the arm of God, it is the gospel. That's what saves sinners. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Romans 10, 14, Paul says it this way. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is a classic section right there for evangelism, for going forth with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Robert Murray McShane in that great hymn, Jehovah's at Kenyu says, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger, I felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah's at Kenyu was nothing to me. Like tears of the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, but thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah, to Kenyu, my Savior must be. 
But then he says, when free grace awoke me, by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah said, can you, my savior must be. It is because free grace from on high awakes the soul to salvation. Let us not give up on the gospel. We don't need the gimmicks. If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully, 2 Timothy 2.5. I don't need to add anything to it. There it is, the work is done. The cries from Calvary, shout out victory, salvation to the poor, miserable, condemned, guilty sinner. There's life in a look at the crucified one. That's how Spurgeon was saved, wasn't he? When he went to that church as a 15-year-old boy, that snowstorm had kept everybody out. Spurgeon found his way into the pews, and the janitor looked around and saw him in the back, decided to preach. Hallelujah. And he preached from Numbers 21. Look unto me, and be ye saved, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must I, the son of man, son of man be lifted up. Look, look, young man, look. And Spurgeon came into the saving faith of the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon, at one time, talking about him in his tabernacle, they just did some reconstruction on the place, remodeling, and he was in there that, that, that day that it was almost, I think, completed, and he decided he was going to test the acoustics. So it was a large place. I think it fit about 5,000 people, and that was huge back then. And so he decided to test it, and he tested it this way. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Somehow somebody was in the very upper balcony, heard those words, and got saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is life-giving and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Do we know the word? Can we preach the word? Can we quote the word? That's what's going to save people. It's not our articulation. It's not the enticing words. It's not the alluring phrases that are going to bring people to know Christ. It's going to be the gospel, the word of God. And that's where we have to place our emphasis upon is the power. Look at what Charles Wesley himself wrote. And by the way, Wesley, Charles particularly, I think was strongly influenced by Whitfield. And it suggested, at least Ian Murray does, suggests that he believes that Charles Wesley came into the doctrines of grace in his later, later years, or at least grasped the, 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 the majority doctrine of the doctrines of grace. And Wesley writes it this way, and I'm not sure at what point that he wrote it. I'm, I'm just telling you, and you all know these lines. Long my, in, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what the sinner is in the dungeon dark, but the light from on high can awake them. The hymn writer says, Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, saying, This mountain is no hiding place. Oh, how the sinner tries to find some consolation, some refuge in Mount Sinai, by commandment keeping. But the mountain itself says, this mountain is no hiding place. Then I love that next stanza. 
on Jesus, God's just vengeance fell, which would have sunk the world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became their hiding place. Should sevenfold storms of thunder roll and shake this globe from pole to pole, no thunderbolt shall daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. Hallelujah.